Welcome back to the program. Kay Redfield Jameson, in her classic book about depression, The Unquiet Mind, says that manic depression distorts mood and thoughts, incites dreadful behavior, destroys the basis of rational thought, and too often erodes the desire and the will to live. It's an illness that is biological in its origins, yet one that feels psychological in the experience of it. An illness that is unique in conferring advantage and pleasure, yet one that brings in its wake almost unendurable suffering. But imagine if no one knows what your illness is, or if it's mistreated by the medical community. How much worse is it when treatment is possible, but it's prevented or delayed because of ignorance? That's in part the story of our guest, Melody Moisey. Melody Moisey is an Iranian-American activist, an attorney, a writer, and award-winning author of War on Error. She blogs for the Huffington Post, Ms. and BP Magazine. Her writing has appeared in numerous other publications, and it is my pleasure to welcome her to the program today to talk about her newest work, Haldol and Hyacinths, A Bipolar Life. Melody Moisey, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. First of all, tell us a little bit about when you first realized that you had depression at all, that something was, was wrong. Uh, for me, it was in high school. I was about 16 or 17 years old. Uh, I didn't have a name for it. Uh, it was 1997, so it wasn't as popular to be medicating your children at that time, which is both a good and bad thing to a certain extent. Uh, but, yeah, I, I didn't get medication. I got support from teachers in particular uh, who also didn't have a name for it. They just knew that I was really down. Uh, and, you know, part of it was just, oh, this is normal adolescence and, uh, you know, catcher in the rye kind of stuff. So uh, it was misinterpreted, but, you know, it's something I dealt with for a long time, about 10 years before I got a proper diagnosis of uh, bipolar disorder, which is very common. Most people, it takes 8 to 10 years to get a proper diagnosis. Talk a little bit about that, because the normal diagnosis, if one presents with, with many of the symptoms that you brought forth, the normal diagnosis, which you had finally and initially, was unipolar depression. Talk a little bit about that and the difference between that and bipolar depression. Well, you know, unipolar depression is a part of uh, bipolar disorder. So unipolar depression and bipolar depression look the same. Uh, unfortunately, you can't treat them the same. And bipolar disorder doesn't respond as well to antidepressants. Uh, and it's very difficult to give antidepressants to somebody who has bipolar because it can make some make you manic. Uh, it's pretty easy. You can't treat uh, bipolar disorder without some sort of mood stabilizer. Um, I'm talking bipolar one in particular. Sometimes with lower uh, lower levels, I guess cyclothymia or bipolar two, it's possible to deal with it without medication. Um, but for me, medication is absolutely essential. And for bipolar, that's the case uh, to the point that if you have bipolar 1 and your physician does not prescribe medication, you can sue them for malpractice. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a very serious issue and needs to be taken seriously and treated in 99% of the case cases uh, with bipolar disorder type 1. It needs to be treated with medication. Explain a little bit why it is so difficult for the medical community to diagnose bipolar depression. Why the tendency is to always diagnose the unipolar depression first. You know, with women, unipolar depression is the standard misdiagnosis. With men, schizophrenia is the standard misdiagnosis. 
women are much more likely to go and get seek help when we're depressed. Um, men, if they seek help, is generally when they're delusional, uh, which is why we get these different diagnoses, misdiagnoses, I should say. But I think the reason it happens is a lot of us, when I was manic, I felt good. I felt better than good. Why would I go see a doctor, right? Uh, so it, it was my normal. Uh, to the point, you know, it, it was my normal for a long time until it got to the point where my normal no longer looked normal to everyone else. Um, and I was so manic that I became psychotic and had delusions, hallucinations, all of that. And at that point, it's very easy to diagnose bipolar disorder. You were talking about how long it takes, the 8 to 10 years. That's become the national average, essentially, for this. Yeah. Talk, it's, talk, it's unbelievable, yeah. Talk a little bit about your own experience and how you got to the point where you were hosp- had to be hospitalized. Um, you know, the first time that I was hospitalized, uh, I maintained that misdiagnosis. I was hospitalized my last semester in law school, which if anyone's gone to law school, they know is the dumbest time to try and kill yourself, which <laughs> I did. Uh, if you're going to try and kill yourself, you do it the first year of law school, not the last. Uh, but you know, Which shows you how irrational the suicide really is. Uh, but, you know, it was the, the first presentation of the illness, and uh, in a lot of cases, people after a suicide attempt go with bipolar go manic. Uh, and I was mildly manic in the hospital, and I have a lot of, you know, distrust of the health, mental health system because of that. I wasn't properly diagnosed even though I was in the hospital for a week, um, you know, which is frustrating that I saw psychiatrists and none of them thought to properly diagnose me, even though at the time I looked pretty manic to the point where other patients were telling me, you know, I think you might have bipolar, and as a standard person who hears that, I said, nah, you have bipolar, but, you know, I'm not like you. I'm not really crazy. I just have depression. To what extent was this the incompetence and the mistakes of a specific set of doctors? And to what extent have you found that this is repeated over and over and over again? I, I can't just blame the doctors. I, it, like I said, I didn't go see uh, doctors especially often when I was manic. It didn't, it didn't make sense to me. But there was a lot of incompetence there. Um, there was a lot of negligence. And I haven't sued anyone, although I would have legitimate lawsuits against those people, uh, especially who didn't bother to diagnose me when I looked so manic when I was saying that other patients were telling me that. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of it had to do with that. And, you know, some of it obviously was my own issues. Uh, for a while, I mistook my hallucinations for aura. I have migraines. Uh, it turns out most people don't talk to their aura, uh, but I was trying to delude myself into thinking, you know, these aren't real hallucinations. I'm not really crazy. But, you know, of course I had my suspicions. Of course, the degree to which you were also high-functioning played a role as well. Yeah, for sure. And that that's part of why I think they, it would have been hard not to di- diagnose bipolar disorder because I would go to the uh, psychiatrist when I was depressed and when, when I wasn't, obviously I didn't. And in the times that I wasn't depressed, often I was man- more manic, mildly manic or hypomanic, uh, and able to accomplish a lot. So if a physician would look at my file and say, oh, she comes to me when she's depressed, but by the way, she is in law school getting a master's and finishing a book at the same time, uh, which is a lot to do at once. Mm-hmm. So it may have been, you know, a, a signal to some people uh, eventually, I did get some great doctors, 
uh, and unfortunately, that was a little too late to prevent uh, my bipolar from getting to the point of bipolar one, which is the most extreme version. To what extent does the fact that so much of mental illness is still stigmatized play a role in, one, the way people seek treatment or don't seek treatment in certain cases, and the way it is treated by the medical community? I think stigma is the number one obstacle to treatment. And we often talk about stigma in society, just general society, but there is a huge level of stigma within the mental health community. Uh, When you enter a psychiatric hospital inpatient especially, what happens is you lose all credibility. I, I write about this in the book, about how going through my medical records, when I was writing the book, I ordered you know, all my medical records, and going through them, I noticed that over and over in one set of records, it said patient has delusions that she's a lawyer and an author. Of course I am. <laughs> and you can't, you, know, you can't treat someone for you know, insanity in any way unless you're able to help them distinguish delusion from reality. And that was really hard because, you know, not only could they have asked my family that was very involved and interested in helping me and came to the hospital, they could have easily Googled me at the time I was the Georgia Author of the Year for nonfiction. Like, they could have easily found that out Googling me. Uh, so, so that was actually uh, really disturbing. And it's funny because towards the end, there's a part where it says, again, patient has delusions uh, that she's a lawyer and author. And... It, delusions is crossed out. And very quickly thereafter, I was released. Because the whole time I kept saying, I'm going to sue you guys. <laughs> Which, again, I didn't do. But the whole time I'm threatening to sue them. And finally they realize, oh, she actually knows what she's talking about. So they let me go. Are we making progress? Do you sense that there's progress being made within the medical community and, and society at large in, in terms of the way it understands this? in being able to treat this and that, that maybe, you know, if we had this conversation years from now, the period of diagnosis would be reduced from 8 to 10 years to maybe 4 to 5 years? In that sense, I think if people do seek help, perhaps. Uh, it's a weird situation because there is both overdiagnosis, especially when it comes to children, uh, and also misdiagnosis and underdiagnosis in certain populations. Uh, but to ask about progress, I don't think there's progress when the three top mental facilities in the United States are all prisons. L.A. County Prison, Rikers Island, and Cook County are the largest mental health facilities in this country. And in that sense, we criminalize mental illness. Uh, and the way that we're treating it is not just unethical. It's really expensive. The you know, top four leading causes of disability in the world are mental illnesses. They cost a lot of money. And in my background with public health, you know, I've learned that people listen to these statistics. And for some reason, they're not listening. And not only are they providing, in many states, are they not providing uh, funding. They're cutting it. And I'm in North Carolina, and that has just happened with the budget that we passed. We've cut mental health funding, even though we can't even maintain what we already have. How much better have we gotten in the period of time that you've been dealing with this even? How much better have we gotten with respect to treatment and medications and understanding how those medications work? Uh, well, you know, I've, I've been diagnosed properly for about five years. Uh, the medications, this is a chronic illness in most cases, and it can be treated, and people can live extraordinary lives and do very well with treatment. Unfortunately, it can take a long time to find 
a proper set of medications that works or one medication, and I think physicians tend to over-medicate, and unfortunately, some doctors will prescribe two medications at once, two daily medications that you take every day, which makes no sense to me because ultimately you don't know which medication is working or if it's the combination of medications that's working. Uh, and, you know, when you have these 15-minute med checks with a psychiatrist, how are they really going to be able to tell what's going on? And unfortunately, people with mental illness tend not to go and get second, third, fourth opinions, which are vital because depending on your diagnosis, the treatment is very different. For example, with unipolar depression, you treat with, you know, antidepressants if it's, you know, a really serious matter. And then with bipolar, if you treat purely with antidepressants without a mood stabilizer, your patient is going to go manic. To what extent does the perception of mental illness in the popular culture play a role in the way the medical community deals with it, in the way it is treated, in the way it is a medical problem? I think it plays a large role, uh, unfortunately. People with mental illness are no more likely to be violent when you control for substance abuse than the general population. We are actually four times more likely to be victims of violence and ten times more likely to be victims than to be perpetrators. Uh, so that is a serious misperception that the media continues uh, to perpetuate. And what happens is when we only hear about mental illness when something like Newtown happens, uh, some sort of tragedy where there's been violence involved, of course, there's ultimately people make come to the conclusion that, oh, it must have something to do with it. You know, people who are mentally ill are violent, even though, for example, with Newtown, there's not even, it's not even clear uh, if the gentleman had, if Adam Lanza actually had a mental illness or not. You can be, there's, you know, there's a difference between being crooked and being crazy. Uh, you can just be a jerk, you know. <laughs> There's no control for that. And and I think we jump to the conclusion that, you know, a lot of people are mentally ill when really they're just jerks. Let's talk a little bit about the link between mental illness and physical illness. You had a physical illness, a, a pancreatic tumor, which in some ways contributed to the misdiagnosis, and we're seeing more and more evidence and research that tells us that there is often a link between some kind of physical illness and mental illness. That's very true. A lot of studies have come out to show that uh, people with mental illness are much more likely to have physical illnesses. I think a lot of that has to do with the obesity that is caused by a lot of these medications as a side effect. Uh, it has to do with the fact that Smoking is almost encouraged in some of these facilities. A way to control patients is to say that you're going to take away their cigarettes. I was in one facility where the only way that you were allowed to go outside for fresh, so-called fresh air was to smoke. Uh, it was a locked facility, and there was an atrium, and the only way that you're allowed in that atrium, apart from you know set times where people could go, uh, was if you smoked. So people actually picked up smoking just to be able to go outside. Uh, so we're, and people with mental illness have a rate of smoking that's about 75%. It's three times the national average of people without mental illness. Talk a little bit about the, the cycle that gets put into place, because in many cases, the damage from the physical illness contributes to the perpetuation of the mental illness. Very true, and unfortunately, people don't do psych consults when they should. Um, people, when you have a physical illness, that becomes the priority. 
uh, and you, you know, you end up having to deal with that physical illness, or if you have a mental illness before you're diagnosed with a physical illness, a lot of times people, physicians will say, oh, it must be all in your head. It must be psychosomatic. Uh, and people don't end up getting properly diagnosed with physical illnesses. Uh, so, and I think trauma, you know, when I said, I'm not sure I said this, but 70% of, if you have, uh, identical twins, if one twin has bipolar disorder, it's about a 70% chance that the other one will. And in the general populations, it's about 2 to 3% chance that, uh, that you'll have bipolar disorder. So obviously there's a genetic component, but there's also, and what's that other 30%? There's also something environmental, and I think a lot of that has to do with trauma. For me, that trauma was a physical illness that was life-threatening at a very young age. Uh, for other people, it has to do with sexual abuse or other kinds of abuse or experience in combat, for example. How might your mental illness have been different had you been diagnosed earlier? Had you been treated earlier? How might it have progressed differently? I might have bipolar 2 right now instead of bipolar 1. I may have never gotten to the point where I, I had full-blown mania. But I should say I would never have accepted my diagnosis unless I was having hallucinations and delusions, and it was that bad. And, you know, as I mentioned, my father and my mother are both physicians. At one point, my father told me about two or three years before I was diagnosed that he thought I might have bipolar disorder, and my immediate response right away was, well, of course, you have bipolar disorder, not me. <laughs> um, right? I mean, accusatory. But, but, yeah, I wouldn't have accepted it. So, I mean, I have no regrets in that sense and no bitterness in that sense because my personality is a way that I wouldn't have accepted it if it weren't in its most extreme form. What kind of objective testing do we have with respect to both of these things, with respect to both unipolar depression and bipolar depression? Like most of psychiatry, it's all about symptoms. Uh, basically, this is why second and third and fourth opinions are so important. Basically, a psychiatrist looks at you and says, do you have X, Y, and Z symptoms? And people lie, right, all the time. Um, that seems to be the standard. So the fact that you can immediately diagnose something just based on symptoms is sort of a joke. So people are working on, scientists are working on blood tests. Uh, these days you can do MRIs and fMRIs where you can see huge differences in the brain between people who have uh, bipolar disorder and uh, folks who don't, they're finding some genes that are active in both bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. Uh, they appear to be the same genes in some cases. So there, there is scientific progress, but again, if the funding is not there, forget it. We're not going to get the progress that we need. If we had the funding, I think we would have a lot better treatments, a lot more treatments, and I think a lot of that has to do with more people with mental illness standing up, coming out, and demanding help and losing the shame and the fear and ending their silence. Because if we don't stand up for ourselves, no one is going to stand up for us. Tell us a little bit about what kind of reaction you've gotten, what kind of pushback you've gotten from the medical medical mental health community to what you've written about. Uh, it's been sort of mixed. I, I, there was a review written in the, I think it was the New York Journal of Books, by a psychiatrist that was actually a really great review, although he did mention that uh, I sort of blasted some psychiatrists <laughs> in the medical uh, community a little bit, uh, but their reaction hasn't been all that great. Uh, but at the same time, 
It just it just depends on the person, I think. Uh, there are a lot of psychiatrists and psychologists who are willing to admit that there's, there are problems within the system. And for me, I think a lot of it has to do with we need to merge neurology uh, and psychiatry. If we're going to call this an organic illness, we need to start treating it as such. And I think psychiatrists feel very threatened by the fact that neuropsychiatry is a growing field, and ultimately it will just be neurology and their profession, as they see it, in terms of diagnosing based on solely symptoms, is going to change, and they need to change with it. And that's a scary thing, I think, for a lot of people in psychiatry and psychology. And how are you doing, Melody? Alhamdulillah. We say, thank God. I'm doing very well. I'm very blessed. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with breaking my silence, because I think silence keeps us sick more than anything else. Melody Moisey, her book is Hal Dole and Hyacinths, A Bipolar Life. Melody, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.